to kick off the 2020 season, I did an episode titled 2019 Highlights, 2020 Hopes. And in that, I not only included some excerpts from episodes in 2019, but I also included a snippet of a short story called This is a Language of Fists. It's a boxing story that's also a personal project and one that I created so that I could also do an audio project to go with it. That audio project is currently being paired using Amazon's WhisperSync technology and I'm waiting for their approval for it to be available for official release. The short story is available. The audio version is not. Given the current climate, the coronavirus, the way it's encouraging us to be at home, spend time engaging in the activities we so often don't have time for. So many great writers have been reading classic works, and that's something I'm actually open to. If you let me know, that's something you'd like to hear from me. In the interim, since I already have an audio recording of This is a Language of Fists, and I believe it's important that all of us who are artists, writers, collaborators, creators, provide content that shows our gifts and uses them in a time when they can most be needed, I've decided to upload and share this version of This is a Language of Fists for free here on the podcast, Storytelling with Seth. The purpose of this is to not only share my story, but to provide you with content that hopefully distracts you from your day from the pressures, the challenges, the fears, the concerns, and the uncertainty we're all facing. The stories that we cling to, the stories we love, the stories that encourage and inspire us are many of the reasons why we become who we are, why we live our lives according to the values or ideals that we embrace. Being a part of that collective, sharing my story here in a public platform is a way for me to hopefully be a source for those looking for hope, inspiration, encouragement, and comfort in a time again of questions and wondering. With the future so uncertain, I hope this moment in the present is one that gives you pause and allows you to take a break from the day-to-day challenges we are all learning to deal with. I look forward to sharing more content with you in the future, including some upcoming interviews I've had. But in the meantime, I offer to you now, this is a language of fists with no commercial interruptions, no advertisements, and I'll see you at the end. Mike picks me up three hours before the fights and weaves the rust brown accord through low clouds and light fog on Highway 132 bearing east. The Old County Road kills commuters in the double digits every year, and an unbroken train of drivers and cars tailing each other at a distance closer than two lengths must figure this shorter drive is worth the risk. The interior of the car is quiet. He exits at Mays Boulevard and cuts through Modesto's downtown traffic. At the Fat Cat, we show our driver's licenses to a big local boy in new jeans in front of the open red door. The sleeves on his untucked green button-down are rolled up past the elbow, and a thick forearm and biceps gleam with the sweat of a worker's tan as he brings my license closer. 
He studies my face and then looks back at the card. His left leg and shoulder fill the doorway while he hesitates and then finally steps aside to let us in. He glances at Mike's ID and then looks back at me. I nod and we walk in. We walk over a red carpet, once plush, now mottled by beer stains and bleached patches. Between the blood, the visible vomit, and liquor combinations, I can only imagine what that whitewash did obliterate. A man in a black t-shirt and jeans sets up behind the wooden bar on the right. I feel like I'm the only one who sees the boxing ring, a box that has been built on top of the black and white tiled dance floor. I want to dance above that floor. The cocktail tables have been draped with maroon tablecloths and tagged with VIP placards and moved onto the stage where cover bands usually perform. Ice clinks in a metal washbin and there is a murmur of muffled conversation drifting from a hallway in the back. The grip of well vodka and gin is thick. I am going to dance on that floor. Karen is a short boxing promoter wearing a low-cut purple sweater over round curves. She sits next to a guy with glasses at the table in front of the ring. The fights are held on the first Tuesday of every month, and every time Karen says the name of the guy with the glasses, and every time I forget. How's our champ today, she asks, tilting her chin up with a smile. Ready to put on a show. All right, you're checked in. Get weighed, and then we'll see you upstairs. She leans over and blocks the view of the glasses guy's receding hairline to check off my name. Mike steps back and takes his time staring down at the table. I turn my eyes up to the balcony railings, tracing three sides of the ring. In two hours, both floors will boil with friends and drunks and friends of the other guy talking shit and looking for a fight and so many girls screaming at each swing or shove. On the fourth wall above the stage, a seven by ten foot span of plexiglass offers a one-way mirror for the fighters. Once they weigh in downstairs and get a Polaroid taken, those amateurs are sent upstairs to a room wrapped in cheap red and gold parlor wallpaper with a ragged pale green carpet splattered with stain. In the first hour, at least 15 wannabes will be roaming around the room. They wander about with their gym bags or plastic grocery bags filled with the salves and ace bandages or pills, appearing to those outside as outlines and featureless shapes. If 30 fighters show, then it is a full card night. Every competitor is required to have a mouthpiece and show it. Some bring a buddy or a trainer and use their own target pads to warm up. I carry a tattered blue messenger bag with a water bottle, a janky disc man set on repeat to Brother Lynch Hung's Spitz Network, a leather jump rope with wooden handles, rappelling rope for practicing knots, and a copy of the Tao Te Ching, because it's the only thing that slows my breathing when the adrenaline starts to spike. Then, after getting hands wrapped and taped by the volunteer cornermen, Max and Frank, and checked out by the doctor, everybody sits along the wall and across the floor waiting. Visitors will pop in, friends who want to lend moral support and girlfriends trying to give one more good luck kiss, peek in and believe in those moments that they are doing something that will count or make a difference in the night or the fight. Everyone dreams of a Hollywood finish, but this is not the place. Anyone who has a dream ending, replete with fog, theme music, and a spotlight scheduled for tonight, has already lost. Two days before, I was killing myself, getting ready for that green room. By the third step, my heart beyond pounding. Bump, 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 bump. Two days before, I was a machine. 
I drove my legs into the concrete, pictured aluminum brush pistons throttling together in one synchronous movement, heard the thundering hiss of each joint slide at whistling speeds a hair's breadth from surrounding cylinders. This was a 2.3-mile run around the subdivision that is my prison. This is what boxers call road work. I always wanted to be a boxer. I started on the sidewalk and headed toward the railroad tracks and the dirt road. I tightened my fists and every other sway of my hips propelled another short body blow to the ribs of the invisible opponent always dancing just ahead of my hands. That image shifted. It matched each step with the rhythm of the pistons and kept that invisible bastard, my opponent, just out of my reach. I snapped those fists out and back in a biorhythm. With each grunt, they fed me. The image of the piston is my simple trick. Breaking movement into mechanics pairs each breath with an action until the cadence of thought-breath move is efficient and precise. Cold muscles begin to swell with the increased circulation. A pace is built. Slowing down is failure. Just like a fight, the key is to never stop. I shifted my weight and flexed the quadriceps instinctively when I turned right to follow the tracks and the terrain became baked earth scattered with dirt pebbles. I veered behind the subdivision sound wall and the tracks and canals that blend into an acre of condos stretching to the west. The Chateauian background of the Altamont sloping brown hills surround the far horizon in every direction. On my left wound the seven-foot-wide irrigation ditch that fed four alfalfa fields. Those fields, like the walnut orchards, once dominated this valley. Now the plots are dense patches of green trying to hold back subdivisions and Rite Aid shopping centers with fences and property lines in what was once a breadbasket agriculture town. Trying to find a metal distraction from this monotonous toil is a gamble. Before, not so many years before, running down Fulton Street and along the northern border of Golden Gate Park, I lost myself in strategies for the next sparring session. Pictured enemies in the ring, and in my solitude sought the memory of friends to daily haunt and drive me. It was perfect. Then, everything had been an inspiration that drove me forward. Those thoughts, memories, and reflections had pressed me on. I had moved so effortlessly in their direction. Perfect. Then I tried to chase my dream to another city, and perfect was suddenly just a word. During a run, I could get lost in the wrong reflection, and the sorrow would swallow me like a sandstorm and leave no trace. So I took another breath in through my nose and shoved it out of my mouth. I was a personal trainer once, and I know about breathing. In the circulatory system, each pulse forces blood cell against capillary. Air is drawn into the lungs and down to the bronchioles and transferred to the blood cells. When the cells reach the muscles, microscopic arms scoop one of the three molecules of oxygen from the belly of the cell. Within a self-contained oxygenation system, the blood, the muscles, are only fed and given strength for the next movement. And I took another breath so I could take another step. My legs flexed again as I approached the end of the sound wall, turned right onto the sidewalk, and followed the main boulevard leading back into town. The pistons in my legs drove down but stopped short of pounding the concrete, and I shifted my weight to bounce on the balls of my feet with each step. 
On the left, the traffic was a blur of sporadic gusts and dust and rich exhaust fume. I wove a course of figure-eight patterns between the ornamental saplings embedded in square planner cutouts carved into the sidewalk next to the curb. I stomped my left foot down at the midpoint distance between the stake-lashed trunks to start a sprint. I pivoted from the ball of my foot and cut diagonally to sprint to the next midpoint and the starting line of the next sprint beneath the sparse shade of wilted leaves. I could already taste metal and the mucus scent of my lungs burning. The vapors coated the back of my teeth in a film. Each expulsive exhale marked the count from five sprints to four, from three to two, and finally to the last tree. Me? I heard the roar of my heart and lungs like a hurricane wind digging manicured nails behind my ears and across and down the back of my neck. My thighs and calves stretched to a full stride in a final sprint with my head thrown back and a sharp laugh I soared down the street with each violent gasp. I would fly now. My house was the third on the left when I hung a wide right turn and I let the smile begin to stream across my cheeks and pass my ears at the appearance of that errant thought. The air conditioning was on when I entered through the side door panting and stumbled into the kitchen. My pores twisted closed. Sweat beaded like raindrops on wax. Later, I'll shower and eat rice, chicken and broccoli. I'll lie on the couch and feel maroon polyester plush on my cheek and listen to the vibration of the hairs on my arm when I brush the fibers of crushed velvet backwards. The early birds, chickens, and roosters have already trickled in for fight night. The floor space around the ring is packed six deep. Most of the idiots on the floor are there to see the blood up close and try to get their hands dirty. These kids just love starting fights in the crowd. They get drunk and loud, and suddenly the action is outside of the ring. Two armed police officers, four Marines, and four paramedics are always present at ringside. They do little. Cops and Marines, in my mind, are just hotheads with more training, uniforms, and a little political clout. Paramedics are just casualties if they don't stay out of the way. Every time the place goes out of control, the guys in the green room rush to the mirror and stare down at the brawl that has just taken center stage. They press their fingertips and noses against that glass like children at a window display until it fogs with condensation. We must look like ghosts from the other side of the glass. But right now, I stare out the almost two-way window and watch two horribly untrained big boys waddle across the ring, toting layers of fat to the first fight. They squint under the lights, and when they look down, they look at the crowd. It restricts their vision even worse than the headgear does. They don't even take a stance. They swing their arms from their waists in gaping, flailing flurries before collapsing into each other and gasping through the sweat on the other's shoulders. Less than half of the guys on the sign-up sheet are in the green room, and the air is already thick. But I've known hotter. And most of the boys in here grew up under a sun that scours humanity from the face of the San Joaquin Central Valley floor every summer. It's a mark of distinction to stand up under God's magnifying glass, under that sun, like one angry ant. 
Eight hours of hard labor in that punishment becomes a single defiant gesture. Humidity in here makes everybody sweat, and it separates talent and conditioning like only atmosphere can. This part of the valley is full of big boys who played football or some other grunt sport in high school that only required them to throw their body weight around. These mooks haven't done much since, except maybe talk about the most recent fight they almost got into or watched while out clubbing. They pound down overpriced domestic bottled beer and snicker from the balcony at the weak and the scared and joke about how they're watching the equivalent of a peewee football game starring the underdeveloped. That's fair. It's a backhanded compliment for some of these want-to-be-called fighters. No one expects to be impressed in the bar. No one in the green room wants to be impressed. Outside the ring, these fans, these people, swill Remy and Grey Goose in quantities that swallow a week's pay before the bell sounds for the second fight. At floor level, it is regurgitated alcohol mixed with trendy hair products and sweaty cologne. The parts per million quantities will make me gag if I don't remember how to breathe through my teeth. Underneath it all, these gawkers wear the thick humidity of fear clinging to clammy skin cooled slick. They are excited and scared, and they've heard about how men bleed here. And they listen during the stories of how, when some fighters fall, it's like a tree falling and everyone's in the same forest, or how the wild ones thrash madly and stumble through their own blood until one shot finally plasters them on that canvas. They peer inside the ropes where, throwing some of the wildest haymakers God never intended for street fighting, let alone boxing, these amateurs sweat small rivers down their backs between blinks. To train for a fight, boxers alternate road work with ring work. Clearing space in my suburban garage a little smaller than seven feet wide by six feet only points out how little room there is for me to work. It's an exercise in futility that Sisyphus would appreciate. The barely threadbare orange-green carpet provides little traction and no comfort from the concrete slab beneath. I don't have to open my eyes to know any of this. I feel it like the cold of the cement leaching warmth through the thin rubber soles of my wrestling shoes. Two feet to the left are the salvage remains of my roommate's wrecked 1967 Volkswagen Bug waiting to be restored. There are only three feet of clear space behind me before a wild limb will strike the exposed two-by-four skeleton of the main garage door. It's not the worst place to catch a heel or hear an elbow crack while twisting away to set a hook, but I've felt it. The heavy bag hanging from thick chain links and a two-by-six beam in the center of this shit is an obscene joke. Well, where does everyone think we go? There are no options anyway. Boxing gyms aren't looking for us in the middle of California. Fighting has always been a discipline of pain. It is an acceptance that pain is real, that pain is unyielding, and that pain is the integral part of anything worth doing. Best coach out there will tell you for every punch I throw, I have to accept that my opponent will hit me before and after the attempt. If I want to throw a punch that will count, I have to be there, in the thick, to take and accept before I give back. Fists that can't break stone are nothing in this game. In here, on my own, I have to find that beat and that rhythm and feel it pound, 
thump smack against my ribs until my veins are throbbing and boiling with fire. And with every beat I throw, dodge, set up the combo, or practice taking another punch, I have to remember and imagine the unexpected if I expect to last. I have to steal moments from memories and lose myself in the fiery hate it brings. A guy named Whiting cracked me two months ago during a clinch in the first round with a left hook to the back of the head while growling shit talk in my ear. I don't remember what he said. I began to fall into unconsciousness in a warm, tingly bath that swallowed my skin and arms. The sound of the crowd was swept away like the tide and made my knees dip in the undercurrent. The violence of screams returned to me in a thunderous swell two heartbeats later, and then the ref separated us. And in a blurred rage, I screamed, Fuman Cha! And fired two jabs through his face and left eye before the bell sounded. It was about seeing the ring post behind his head and punching through it as Bruce Lee urged. Those two shots opened that pussy's lip and nose. I bounced back with a short hop and tapped my gloves lightly. I knew that no one there had the skill to stop that bleeding long before they called the fight. So this is what I do. This is how I train. Alone in here and in my mind, I set the stage and create my opponent and wrap his image around my heavy bag. He keeps his gloves gently thumping together. The left foot moves forward, the shoulders roll back, and with an exhale, a soft sigh pushed through the gap in the mouthpiece, I watch him mirror me as we take the same stance. This opponent is tall and lean, his veins are swollen rivers and pulsing cords that twist down forearms, wrists, and hands draped in a gray training shirt. Feet pad lightly as he gently shifts from foot to foot and lets his hands float out in front of him in soft combinations. He steps forward and the light behind him still does not touch his features, but I know him. We have identical shoulders and torsos, the same bludgeoned nose, and our lower lips pull down as we study each other. This is the only thing that works. There is no one else to drive, push, or punish me. No one else wants to bleed this bad just to keep from getting hurt in the ring, just to stay upright long enough to keep throwing and to keep from looking bad. I need this. And my opponent, the pale one wrapped in shadow, has nothing but this. Instead of a simple figment of my imagination, this creation is a version of the fighter that I don't get to become the kind I still won't. This is a side of me that I have to answer. This is the golem I have to keep locked in a cage before he tries to burn the whole world down. This fucker will march down to the meanest, angriest part of town, stand in the middle of the intersection, tear off his shirt, and scream, feel my hate. This is the fight that can't be lost. It's a question of profession and of being a professional. This is what I chose and how I want to stay. I want to believe that. Starting with the jab sets a pace. The bell already rang somewhere, or it never did and this is just a friendly spar that just happened. A thing my mind uses to make me throw punches. I start with the jab. The first jab should always reset a guy's clock. It should check his momentum at the door and then take his coat and try to strangle him with it. But my opponent is fighting southpaw and has plenty of time to dodge that throw. Snap the jab out again. Let the right fly. 
throw another jab with it, and then move. Let the punches grow faster. Connect into steady, methodical, programmed combinations. Marvelous Marvin Hagler threw 15 punches in the space of two breaths. But even when I slow the tape down and count each individual shot, I know the numbers don't matter. When a guy goes down, it's not about if it was punch number 15 or 3. Fight's still over, and the only punch that counts is the one that put that ass on the floor. My best combination is only 7 punches before I fuck up, and I know my opponent can throw 18. My fist? My fist is a ball made of bone. That ball is a hammer of bone. The hammer draws back and drives forward. And it's on the fourth punch when I have to squeeze my hand tighter so it won't hurt and can't break. The shadow man's eyes have gone wide with laughter. Fists and body grunt together. Blue leather is pounding into canvas. A bare fist is crushing the malleable texture of skin, cartilage, and soft facial bones. I'm holding the same hammer and standing on a railroad in the middle of a desert with caked sand choking my throat. The chinging of metal striking metal turns my head. John Henry. Like the statue and the drawing and the stamp. John Henry. Chiseled and burnished by the sun and glowing like a living carving of polished volcanic rock. His eyes are the only things that pay me any attention and they stare as he draws the hammer back. They stare as he swings downward, and the earth rumbles with the echo of thunder and a shower of sparks from the train spike. I feel the furnace heat of his words brush my skin as he cries aloud, don't waste, make each one count, and swinging again and swinging harder. He thunders the earth again and again, and the sparks from the metal as it rings burn the oxygen from the air. He pounds out each word. Remember, shorter, tighter blows. My punch is slow and each gasp is ragged. I don't even realize that I have sunk to my knees where the stale reek of cat piss ground into the carpet fibers is strongest until I am staring up at the smirking face staring down at me and I see the sound of the wrenching and clanging of hinge and eye bolt and chain as the bag sags and strains against its mooring in the wooden beam above. My knees ache from the unforgiving concrete and the sweat and my muscles are cooling. There isn't even the echo of my opponent's laughter. Lose control and I lose, period. Feel the tape and cloth strain around my knuckles. In my head or not, when it is all done, I have to bring myself back to the fight. I have to keep that sense of despair and loss in a ball under my heart. Right now, I know more than anyone that I can lose this fight tonight. I squeeze my hands tighter before Max grabs my wrist. He stuffs my hands into puffy 16-ounce candy red gloves. They're so old, so shitty, I can feel the gap where the stuffing is pulled away from the lining of the fingertips and balled up at the palm and cracked the leather. But I know what a trashed hand feels like, so I work my fingers into that stuffing and pull that leather snug against my knuckles and squeeze. Max is in his 60s, with a pregnant belly that stretches a red t-shirt barely held in by worn jeans that were never in style and a brown leather belt that dangles towards his knees. 
His black hair molded like a 1959 DeSoto with fins and a gray-tipped, well-groomed handlebar mustache slopes just past his jawline. He doesn't stand much taller than a ring post. And every time he leans close in the corner, with that crazy toothpick half dancing and half hanging from his teeth and ready to poke an eye out, I will get a musky whiff of Palmer's hair product. I don't look to my left at the guy I'm fighting. Don't watch Frank tighten his gloves and fix his headgear. Watch Frank. Frank is the same height as Max, with glasses, thick gray-white hair, and a smooth face, with no five o'clock shadow, even though it's after eight easy by now. His heavy aftershave reminds me of one of my grandpa's old sailing buddies, but except for a blue shirt, he and Frank are identically dressed. They get paid less than Rocky did carrying spit buckets, but they sit fighters down on a cheap wooden stool and with a bemused smile, they'll try to bring any pathetically amateur boxing career back to life in the 90 seconds before the bell rings. It's more than we deserve. Hear the promoter scream. Hear the crowd. My opponent is thick but short. He's not squeezing the gloves. My shadow's pretending to look at the floor while trying to size me up. I think about my training. My legs want to dance. Max has old fat fingers that fumble with the frayed ends of the chin strap before he gets a grip. He yanks it snug and pinches the skin of my throat while I stare in the mirror from under the visor of red padding. Always look in the mirror, but never in the eyes. Look at the bridge of my nose and think about breathing again before Max drags me outside. The opening strains of Eminem's Lose Yourself and a blast of cold air greet me on the other side of the curtain doorway. My skin is mottled goosebumps that make it feel like someone wrapped my flesh in cling wrap. The crowd stares at me and I stare back. I look through them and look for fighters. I look into them and watch the reaction on their faces or watch them look away. I march past the winks and smiles, the glances at my arms or my chest, and I feel my feet begin to shift underneath me. I step from one side to the next and bounce up the metal stairs. I slide between the ropes and feel the canvas sink beneath me. Across the ring in the other corner, my opponent taps his gloves against his blue headgear. I put a target on the center of that man's forehead and walk out toward the referee when the bell rings. I squeeze my hands and think about the times I ran with three-pound dumbbells to make them stronger. The referee grabs our wrists and reminds us of the rules. It's a tough man contest, like the original based in Bay City 1979 and open to the public. But with the blessing of the State Amateur Boxing Association and only 12 related deaths on record, everyone wants to look their best. The referee says to protect ourselves at all times. I remember how hard I trained to be in this ring. If the camera pulled back for a wide shot, the crowd would be hushed and hunched forward. The wide shot lens would capture them collapsing on one another like a wave of dominoes at the sound of the bell. At the bell, we took a few steps toward the center of the ring, and then I took an extra step and snapped a jab into his nose that made his thick head snap back, and he stumbled. Then he put both hands forward like a superhero and plowed me into a corner. This is the part where my opponent became an enraged beast. 
he pinned me against the corner with his shoulder and his left fist and pounded at me with his right. He switched his hands and tried pounding me with his left. He tried to push me further into the corner and the ring post. He pushed like he could bend me in half if he just drove harder with his legs. This is the danger scenario. Anyone stepping into the ring this night felt the bile in their stomach begin to bubble two steps after they walked through the front door. I heard an echo of banshee wind. The best thing I can do, ever, is to breathe. Take the air in, force it out, and find a mantra to repeat the pattern. It's the only way. Everyone here expects me to bleed and lose, or else they silently pray for me to kill something. And the first thing I have to do is remember to breathe. Listen to the pounding thump in my chest. I took a breath and tucked my arms and elbows in close and slipped the headshots when I could. I rolled my head with the shots that landed to let the muscles in my neck absorb the blows. I caught the rest on my forearms and elbows. I wanted him to blow his wad early, and then I wanted to take my time with him. So I clinched his arms to his side and pushed my forehead into his ear. I felt him shudder with rage and grow hot. The referee had to use his shoulder to separate us when the bell rang. My opponent stumbled to his corner. I sat down and didn't blink when the water poured over my neck and shoulders. Last night, I drank a fifth of vodka in two forties, just to sleep. My body is dehydrated and I'm having trouble with why I'm doing this. It comes over me the night before a fight. I can't think of one good reason for why I am here. Waiting for the second round to start is murder on the lungs. It's confusing to watch on television when guys with buckets and sponges and bottles swarm a pro corner at the sound of the bell. Right now I am in the present and I have to get air back on my own. I lean my head back into the corner buckle, hook my arms around the ropes and try to remember how this works. Spitting out the mouthpiece didn't help get the swollen lips and tongue out of the way. I need something else. Everyone in the crowd is cheering and yelling something to me or the other guy. They don't have any advice. They don't get in here. They've never begged for air. They know shit. I blink again and crucial seconds have passed. I gag a cough. It's still impossible for me to breathe without gasping. I become unfocused and distracted for one breath, and the water I'm trying to draw the air through is my own salty sweat clogging my nostrils. Maybe nasal strips or a decongestant would help, though I can't smell the roasted garlic fries or the sweat and beer that I know has saturated everything in here. Adrenaline and neurotransmitters have my body trying to suck oxygen through my pores and my eyelids while the rims of my irises burn like coal from the salt drying them wide open. A small part of me is still trying to calculate how much longer I can do this before my heart would burst. 30 seconds is all it takes if I keep breathing right. Enough oxygen clears my brain and brings my muscles back. Max is talking in both ears while sponging more water on my head and shoulders. I know I should stay off the corner and keep those hands moving. I hear the advice, but I've already got this kid. He's sucking so much water his belly is swelling. His arms are hanging at his sides and his eyes are trying to focus on me. His dark eyebrows, like his short hair, 
are furrowing furiously, and I wonder how much energy he is pissing away trying to stay angry enough to keep fighting. The sound of three loud claps signals the ten seconds of warning for Max to stand me up. He rinses off the mouthpiece and stuffs it against my teeth. He pats my gloves and leans in. I know what you got, boy. Now go fuck him up. The bell rings and round two starts. This time I hold back the jab and let him come forward with his cute little two-fisted charge. I step to my left and tag him with a left and right to his forehead and temple. Then I step right and hit him with a right and a left. We do this again and again before he stops and tries to taunt me from the center of the ring. When I move forward, he lunges toward me with a flurry of hooks that slap at the air, and I step backward twice and he stumbles. I step to my right again and hit him with a left hook on the button that sends him careening towards the ropes when the bell rings. The third round is an afterthought. My opponent is so tired that he sucked all of his air through his mouth. His belly is swollen and fat, and he just wants me to make it a little easier on him. I dance forward and slide right and left to throw left rights and right lefts. At the 10-second clap to end the third round, I tag his chin with the short uppercut and watch him crash into the ropes and sag with his back to me. The bell rings. The crowd roars and boos. It feels, it sounds like a movie or a video game. I point my right glove in the air. Mike had to leave early. Jason, Doug, and Alicia say I can ride with them. When we get outside and cross the street to the parking complex, the air is crisp and dry. We take the elevator up to the third level of the garage and everyone else is very quiet. We stop at a silver pickup. Jason's truck is an 89 Silverado stepside with a single bench that can squeeze three. There isn't even an argument. I wait for someone to say something other than why they need to be in the cab of the truck. Jason said he was the only one driving. Doug and Alicia stay silent. I say, fuck it, and hop into the bed of the truck. I throw my bag down as a pillow and lay down. I turn up the collar on my jacket and pull down my beanie. Jason and Doug are arguing that this isn't right, but neither of them move or offer to take my place. They ask if I am sure I am okay with this, and I say that I am tired. I want to go home, and now I don't care. Just get me home. Jason fires up the truck and we leave the garage and take Highway 99 North. I lay stretched out in the back and put my feet against the corners of the pickup bed to keep from sliding. I look at the sky and see a few stars. Then I realize that the sky is lighter in some places because there are clouds. It begins to drizzle and I lay there and feel the tiny drops on my face. For some reason, I vividly recall my soccer coach inviting me to join his sons on a trip to see Portuguese bullfighting. I try to stop squeezing my fist and stuff it into my jacket pocket. I don't know if it would be any better if I was in the cab. Boxers don't talk so much about this part of fighting. It's a language of fists. I don't know how to talk to people who don't fight without getting angry because they can't understand and I make no sense. My combatants are a lost world of men, one better played out by the gladiators. I feel like most people, 
Even the screaming fans at the Fat Cat think, what a motherfucking ham-headed loser. Or, I would not want to be alone with that man. I am a body moving across the landscape, stretched, arms wide, gripping the pickup's metal sides, going for a wild ride towards home. This makes me smile into the emotionless night. At least we get in the ring and under the lights and do our best to show the other guy what we got. The truck bumps along. At least we can tell ourselves that, I think, as I watch my friends in the cab, talking, drinking bottles of beer, sealed into a world that is separated from me by more than glass after I fight. I clench my fists, think of the rhythm of the fight, the feel of the other guy's face when I hit him for the final time. The rain falls in a steady beat, and by the time I am home, my body is cold and drenched. I grab a bottle of vodka, set the shower on hot. Naked, in front of the steamed glass, alone. Red welts cover my chest and the backs of my arms. I step into the water, feel its hot hand on my back, face, arms. I close my eyes and see a weaving parade of sandbags, men in gloves, bulls. I drink from the bottle and let the water wash over me.
And that was the audio recording for This is a Language of Fists, a short story currently available on Amazon.com. The link will be included in the liner notes of this episode. Once again, I hope this short story gave you a short break from your daily routine, from the challenges this current coronavirus shelter-in-place action has created the climate and the atmosphere we're all living in. I look forward to sharing more content with you that hopefully will provide more breaks, more interruptions, more ways to step away from the pressing concerns, and when the content is over, to come back refreshed, renewed, and hopeful for how we can rise to each challenge we continue to face and the content we can come back to, the stories we can return to that somehow re-energize us, give us the fuel that we need to press on. As always, you can find me on all forms of social media to let me know what you think about this or any episode of Storytelling with Seth, whether it's on Twitter as One More Singleton, on my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller, on my Facebook, Seth Singleton Storyteller, or on Instagram as Seth the Writer. However you choose to find me, feel free to let me know what you thought about this, other episodes, and the kind of content you might like to hear on Storytelling with Seth. And if you think you have a story that we need to hear, one you're ready to share, then please let me know how we can tell your story. And together, add to that collection of stories that have been such an instrumental part of all of our lives. Until next time, thank you for joining, and see you soon on Storytelling with Seth.